Welcome to episode 31 of the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today we're talking about designing and sewing and creativity with two longtime bloggers, Amy Carroll and Ellen Luckett Baker. Amy Carroll writes books, draws, paints, cooks, teaches crafting classes online, sews, parents, young children, tries to exercise regularly, and uses her creativity to both express herself and engage with her fellow humans. Amy's the author of two sewing books. Bend the Rules Sewing, The Essential Guide to a Whole New Way to Sew, which was published by Pottercraft in 2007 and is currently in its fourth printing. And Bend the Rules with Fabric, fun sewing projects with stencils, stamps, dye, photo transfers, silk screening, and more, which was published by Pottercraft in 2009. She's currently teaching video classes in a variety of crafts on Creative Bug. Amy also sells artwork and a natural skincare line in her Etsy shop. Amy Carroll, welcome. Hi there. Hi. Great to have you on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, Ellen Luckett Baker is the author of 123 Sew and 123 Quilt from Chronicle Books. She's a fabric designer for the Japanese company Koka and a blogger at The Long Thread. Ellen <laughs> lives in Atlanta with her husband and two daughters. Ellen Luckett Baker, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, this is going to be a great conversation. I feel like long-term bloggers, you know, kind of people have been on the scene for a long time and have lots of experience and doing all kinds of different things. So it's, um, it's really an honor to have you guys both on the show. So Amy, we're going to start with you. Um, your blog, Angry Chicken, was one of the very first blogs I found back when craft blogs were just beginning to get traction. And um, I want to hear a little bit about the history of Angry Chicken, what were you doing when you started it, and what was it like in the early days? Um, gosh, it was it really exciting and really different than it is now. And I think um, there's definitely among maybe people who've been blogging for a while, there's the, oh, the good old days. But it's true, you can't recreate something like that when it starts, you know, when in it, in its infancy. And, um, I think it was, I feel a little like a broken record because I probably have said the same things about this, um, over the years. But for me at that time, it was, I was a new mom, um, of two little girls. I have three now and my, and my baby is seven. So I'm not sure what happened there, but, um, I needed to reach out and I needed to connect with other creative people. And I was making a transition between fine art and showing in galleries and really embracing more of my crafting and working at home and trying to do, uh, creative projects that I could do with my children around and show it. I think that was the key. I wanted to show it. I wanted to show it and talk about it. And I also wanted to tell people about the books that I read and what I was cooking and what I was doing. And I got the opportunity to sort of have my own magazine, which is what I've always thought of my blog as my own magazine. And that was just, and it was practically free. And I kind of, um, I just fell in love with it. Yeah. I, I love that idea of a blog as your own magazine. I think that that's, um, that's really key. And um, I also share that feeling of wanting to be able to do some things at home and share it and kind of interact with other people who are doing the same thing. Um, so I think there, that, that motivation is probably a pretty common one for, for women who start a, a sort of a craft-based blog. 
Um, okay, so what year was that? Do you remember when well, Angry Chicken? Yeah, happened? because I just looked it up. I was um, trying to remember, and I thought I started blogging in about 2008, and I looked at my archives. It was 2005. Yeah, me too. May, yeah. of, May of 2005. So I think it was right around the same time. Yeah. 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 Okay, so blogging has changed a lot since then. I mean, those were the days before Facebook, before Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, we had Flickr and we had blogs, but you are still here. And I feel like there are a lot of people who were there then who aren't still here now. Um, for whatever reason, it just blogging kind of fell off of their, um, sort of to-do list. And so I wonder, sort of what the key is for you. Like, why do you think you've conserved, because you continually update, like you're steadily here, you're in my RSS reader, um, (laughs) all, you know, you're just keep going. And I just wonder what you feel like the key has been for you. Um, you know, what's funny when you say that is my, the friends, I, the kind of really deep friendships I made blogging back then, all of those people are still blogging. Wow, And so it's kind of funny because I know that a lot of blogs have stopped, but kind of in my weird bubble, they haven't, you know, like the seven or 10 blogs that I really connected with when I first started and we all sort of became friends. They're, they're there. You're there. I mean, you're here, you know, it's funny because yes, they've gone, but, but here's my point is that I feel like I resonated and do resonate with bloggers who were doing it from the heart to begin with. And that's not to put any judgment on anyone who stopped at all. People's change, people's lives change. And also as media changes, I think the format kind of fits the personality for a variety of reasons, whether it's your personality and how you creatively express yourself or whether it's your lifestyle. So sometimes blogs require more writing and more time and that works for a person's life at that time. And then later they're like, no, I'm Instagram because I don't, I'm more visual. I'm, I don't really care about links as much. Um, but I just got into this groove of being able to, I had the most freedom. I could take photos. I can write, I can link. I have a hundred percent control of my content. I have a hundred percent control of whether or not I choose to show advertising. Um, and that control was given to me so early on in the blog format that I just can't move away from that ever really, because I'm so used to it. And I, I am on Instagram, but I use it differently. It's about 30 people and it's really pictures of like my children and my nail polish. You know, I mean, it's extremely <laughs> like you really, and even then I don't think anyone would be interested in it. And, um, except for maybe grandparents and close friends. So really, and truly the, the blog just worked out for me as a medium and, I don't know if there's a key. I just think it has to be a natural fit. Yeah, that is a great point. Um, it really has to serve a purpose for you. Mm-hmm. Like it has to sort of fulfill you in a, in some sort of deep way because often it is time consuming to put together and to put each post together. And sometimes there's, you know, frankly, no reaction. And so there has to be something about doing it despite those things that serves you, um, creatively or in some way through self-expression. So, 
Um, and when I started this podcast, I thought of you while I was kind of conceiving it because one of my favorite parts of your blog is the random recommendations you include <laughs> at the bottom of almost every post. So the post will be about, you know, um, you're studying, you homeschool and you'll, you'll, you're doing a unit on Jane Austen. And so it'll be, you know, sort of titled something Jane Austen related and sort of talking about how you do research on Jane Austen with your kids and what books you've been reading and the play you put on, et cetera. But I always click over, even if I'm like, yeah, I'm not really into Jane Austen right now, because at the, uh, at the bottom of every post, you're like, also, here's some random recommendations of things. And I've bought the best games and books for my kids. And I've made your formula-based recipes that you come up with and found amazing websites from those random recommendations. So I wonder, is recording and sharing the recommendations part of the fun? Absolutely. I mean, and I think that people who've been reading for a while or who know me know my sense of humor too, which is sort of the odd mashup of my brain is amusing to me. And I, um, it's really, I just like to share it, but I was telling my brother last night, actually, we were talking about some project I was working on. And then I said, Oh, do you know about my fish taco project? And he just sort of looked at me like, no. And that's the thing is that I can now decide to have a fish taco project on my craft blog. You know, I just think that's so amusing, but I'm also completely serious. And, um, and your fish taco project is that you're taking pictures of all the fish tacos and talk and like sort of reviewing all the best exactly. fish tacos in Portland. Is that right? Well, it's, it's more random than that. I just, I feel like there's fish taco opportunity anywhere <laughs> and I never really realized it until I kind of, it dawned on me and I thought, you know, I am going to take the opportunity. I might seek it out. It might find me. Um, but I'm going to document it and my children, you know, are in tow often, you know, and I'm like, Oh wait, I think there's a fish taco here. So we'll, you know, make a side trip. And, um, yeah. And, and I just, I honestly find it, I mean, most people probably don't care, but it's just fun. It just makes me laugh and it makes, it kind of just brings me joy to be able to kind of have a place to dump all this stuff, you know? Yeah. And, um, recently, like you started sort of perhaps by accident, kind of a, um, a book club in a way where this, these books are, at least one book is being passed from reader to reader of your blog. So what is that? How did that happen? Okay. That was pretty magical. That is, was completely by accident, but again, it was just the power of the internet. I had this really long post about kind of a, a book series that I read as a child that I didn't think anyone had ever heard of. And of course that happens when you're a kid, you think it's, everything's in a vacuum or at least, I don't know, maybe it did before the internet. So I shared this idea of a secret book and all these people wrote in the comments what their secret books were growing up. You know, the book that they read, they thought maybe no one else knew about, but that really connected with them. And, um, some of the titles were pretty well known, like Anne of Green Gables, but many, many titles were completely, uh, rare and unusual. And one book in particular had created a kind of a big reaction. And it was actually a Portland author who, I later found out my mom knew she's passed away since, um, this author, um, in her eighties, uh, I think about five years ago, but she wrote a book called green sleeves and it's out of print and really hard to find. So when I found it, um, I bought it used and read it and several people had said they hadn't found it. And I thought, well, shoot, I'll just mail it to you. And then it sort of just went from there. And I said, well, maybe you can write some comments and, uh, 
journal and then we can send it to the next person and then they can continue to write in it. So I put in a library card and so people have to sort of write their name to check it out when they get it. And then they email me when they're done and I give them the next address. And so it's on its third reader now. And, um, it's just magical. I got a, a photo from the book and the journal that people have been writing in the comments. And so it's floating around now to different readers. And the other thing is it's a really great book. That's what's so cool is the story is really unusual. And, um, it's not at all what I thought it was going to be. And, um, so that's sort of an ongoing group art project that I have. And I also, I haven't shown this yet, but I printed out miniature covers of all the books people had suggested in those comments. And I think there were over 70 and then more came and I'm going to do an art piece where all of the tiny covers are in a either framed or in a small box. And it's a, the idea is that it's a secret book sort of trove in miniature so we could pull out the covers and then decide what, what to read. Oh, that's cool. So they'll be, so you, they'll be removable. So you can like, yes. them, uh, like a library. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. See, and, and all of this comes about through the blog. And so, yeah, as I was saying earlier, like it still serves that purpose, you mm-hmm. know, like that's, you know, without it, your life wouldn't be as rich, you know, like this wouldn't have happened. That's right. And it's hard when people kind of say, what do you do? And right now my answer is, well, I homeschool. And then if they want to hear more about me, usually that kind of makes people quiet. Um, then I'll say, well, I, you know, I blog and I, I've written craft books, but what I do, well, right now, you know, that book project was really a, a wonderful and working on art pieces related to that or thinking about fish tacos, as silly as it sounds, or, you know, um, thinking about projects that I want to do in miniature. Cause that's always a theme for me is working really small. And it's, it's, yes, I'm a blogger, but it's really, it's become a, a way for me to be an artist in a, in a different way. And so it's sort of hard to talk about. And that's why it's actually really comforting to talk to people who have read my blog for a while and sort of know what I'm about because it's hard. It is a little hard to describe why I do it. But I think when you read it, you can see why I do it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very, very true. So, um, let's talk about, um, then the rule sewing just briefly, because, um, when that book came out, that was the first book that was written by a blogger that I knew, you know what I mean? Like now I feel like, you know, blog to book, it happens pretty often. Um, and once you reach a certain level of success, people are like, yeah, I got a book deal. And, you know, but that was the first one for me. And I remember going to the bookstore here in Wellesley and finding it when it first came out and just like crying, like Amy wrote a book. Like I was just so, (laughs) I felt like I knew you and here was your book and it was real. I don't know. It was a kind of a crazy moment, but so, um, so that book is sort of about making up the rules as you go along, which is the most liberating thing in sewing, in my opinion. So tell us just a little bit about sort of the theory behind that book. I think, you know, it's interesting. I think that, um, that's true. I make, I think I would say that my emphasis on that book wasn't so much, making it up as you go, because I do feel like a lot of sewers deal with frustration when they begin sewing because they are making it up as they go. I mean, I equate it to cooking or knitting, you know, when you're starting and you want to make a cake, if you don't use a recipe, when you make a cake, it chances are you will be frustrated. Is it your fault? Well, not exactly because you're, you're trying to do it without a recipe. So in my book, it was sort of a trick in a way it was bend the rules, but kind of have rules 
you know, have some rules. Don't just go for it. I think what what I saw people do and what I still see people do when they first start sewing is there's fear and there's also expense. You know, it's expensive and they're freaked out and they're nervous about cutting or nervous about following directions. And so they just sort of go for it, not realizing that they, their chances of it going bad are a lot higher. And I think the other thing that happens is if you say, well, it went bad because I never followed a pattern, it sort of is a, is a nicer excuse than, well, it went bad because I couldn't follow the pattern. That feels really crummy. And so what I was trying to do is gently suggest that people do try to follow directions and do try to follow patterns, but sort of figure out how they sew and how they craft and how they create and kind of to pick projects and patterns that gel a little bit better, maybe with their personality types or to know where their pitfalls are. You know, are you detail oriented or are you, um, fly by the seat of your pants and to kind of get, be gentle with yourself, but also be honest with yourself about kind of how, how you think this is really going to go down. Um, rather than a, like a really tailored, you know, project with a ton of details, maybe, you know, a pillow is a good place to start, but it was really just a conversation about kind of creativity and making things. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I love it. I love the idea of, well, for me, when I, when I started, I love the idea of bending the rules because, uh, for me, when I started sewing, one of the things that was most intimidating to me was thinking back to home ec and, you know, sort of this teacher who was sort of scornful and felt as though, you know, it had to be done exactly by the rules. And what I love about sewing stuffed animals and soft sculpture is that there aren't any rules. If you're making a bird, you can just make the bird. It's not as though you're sewing a garment and it has to be on grain and it has to be, you know, cut exactly right and all of those things. It's very sort of freeform and creative. And I found that to be really liberating when I started to sew. So I think um, maybe that was why your book really spoke to me. Well, that's awesome to hear. It was, um, it's, I'm really proud of, of my books and, and it's been nice to kind of live with them over the years because I, when I go back, my girls look at them a lot and I'll read them and say, Hey, that's, that's pretty right on. You know, <laughs> it's, it's nice. It's a nice feeling that I, you know, I'm still right there saying the same stuff. You right. Know? Right. right. Um, okay. So, uh, Ellen, we're going to turn to you. Um, you have also been online for a very long time. When did you begin your blog, The Long Thread? I began blogging around 2007, and I had been reading both of your blogs, um, and Amy's blog was very inspiring. I was home with children. I had a baby and, um, I guess, a three-year-old by that point. Um, so we were... We were um, I was ready to share things. We were making things at home. I was making things with the kids, and I wanted to share and meet other people who were doing the same things and really just find that sense of community, and I think that really was why I came to blogging. And what kinds of things were you making at that time? Like, what were you, what was your creative output like? Well, we were making a lot of crafts. Um, I was sewing some, and we just, I wanted to try everything. Like I wanted to try potato stamping and linoleum printing and I wanted to try it all and I w- loved doing it with the kids. And actually my my older daughter was 5 in 2007 um, and my younger daughter would have been 3. 
So that was such a great age for them to get in and get their hands messy and enjoy doing it, but they still listened to me and took direction for me and would, you know, sort of follow instructions. So we had a, a great time doing that. So we did a lot of crafting and just a little bit of sewing. I started sewing for my girls mostly, and that's really how I became interested in sewing. It all started with a Halloween costume. And I bought Amy's book, and Amy's book was unlike any of the sewing books I'd seen. Um, for one, it was just beautiful and, you know, not sort of the old school sewing books. It was much more modern, I felt. Um, but it felt warm and inviting. And I think that really inspired me with the sewing. Okay, so then when did you sort of make up your mind? I feel like there was a point where you made up your mind where you're like, this is going to be my career now. Like I'm going to sew and I'm going to design fabric and I'm going to make this into something for myself. Well, I started a monogramming and embroidery business around the same time that I started my blog. Um, my mother and her friend had both given me their embroidery machines. So I was home. I had children. I really needed a creative outlet. And so I started this business and that really fueled the blog. I would post things that I had sewn and embroidered on the blog. And then the business end started to feel like more of a slog and it felt like, like a, a sweatshop. I was, you know, I was home making the same item 10 times and I, I found that I really didn't enjoy that aspect anymore, but I did enjoy the blogging because it gave me so much more freedom. And then I realized, oh, well, maybe I could try to write a book. Once, you know, I realized that more people are actually reading my blog and connecting to it, then I realized, well, maybe there's an audience for this. So, yeah, once I talked to an agent and put together a book proposal, then that's when I really felt like that was the direction I was going in. Okay. And that book was one, two, three, so. Yes. All right. So tell us um, how that book is structured and sort of what your intention was. Well, I wanted to, because I feel like there are a lot of books where you have projects and then you drop the project and you move on to something else. So I wanted to take something simple and then build on that skill and try something a little more complex for your next project. So each of the chapters is in groups of three and they become progressively more difficult. Um, so one, two, three, one is easy and then two gets a adds a few more things, and then three will add a few more challenges to that so that you're actually building your skills as you learn to sew. Okay, so give us an example of one of those progressions. Um, well, so like I have a pillow chapter, and um, goodness, <laughs> I haven't even picked up the book in a while, but so you'll learn applique. There are three different applique um, projects in the pillow chapter, so you'll do sort of a an easy applique to begin with, um, with some fusible webbing, and then there's um, needle turn applique, and it just becomes progressively more difficult. Okay, all right. So you're building your skills as you go. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and then that so that book came out, and then did you did you go and sort of dive into book two right away? No, no. Um, I have to say, writing a book is so difficult. It's um, I always say it's it's more difficult than birthing a child, and it takes longer, too. Um, we've renovated two houses. I've birthed two children, but still writing a book is... It's just... It's a strain because you're working on such tight deadlines, and you're working all the time. 
So my weekends were spent working on the book, and there really wasn't much family time. So I had to sort of emotionally and physically even recover from writing that book. And um, I think I took about maybe two years off before I was ready for another one. And I think I'm getting to the point now where I might be ready to write a third book. But it does, it takes a little bit of recovery time in between. Right. No, I hear you. (laughs) Having written two books myself, yeah, I definitely feel like um, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Although I do think that there are a fair number of people who turn in the manuscript and turn around and submit a proposal, like immediately before the manuscript's even been um, edited, just because there's something sort of addictive about book writing, if you really like it. I don't know. It's it's odd that way. Yes. Yeah. Um, So, but I also feel like blogging has really changed for you over the last maybe two years or so. Um, So I know, like, you stopped um, having advertising on your blog and I just, I wonder how, if you can talk a little bit about how you're feeling about blogs now. Well, I really don't read that many blogs anymore. Um, and I feel like I get information in such a fragmented way. I get information through social media, links, you know, it's, it's a really, you know, like I said, fragmented kind of system that we're living in. So, I don't read them as much anymore, and I got to the point with my blog where I had gotten enough readers that I could be a blogger, and that could be my job, and I could have advertisers, and I could start to pay contributors, and that really felt more like work to me than what I wanted it to feel like, and I wanted it to feel creative and natural and authentic, and it became not that way anymore. I I felt like I was... Um, you know, I'd seen some blogs where they posted stuff and then their advertisers got mad at them. And I thought, you know, I, I need really, I need complete creative freedom. And I have never been too personal on my blog. Um, you know, I talk, I talk about parenting some and, and some things about family, but I never got really personal. And so I sort of felt like there was this fork in the road and I either needed to take my blog down a path where I became more personal with it or I needed to professionalize it and, you know, go down the path of making money. And and I sort of got stuck in those paths and just decided that I just wanted to make things. And that's where I am right now. And I'm still sort of, I have all these things I want to write about. And I want to write about pop culture. I want to write about raising kids. I want to write about all these things. But I haven't really, I'm not sure that the long thread is really my format for that. So I, I think about it all the time, about ways that I could write creatively um, in a different path, not just about sewing and crafts. Yeah. But I'm not sure the long thread is the right place for that. So I'm, I'm exploring ideas about that. It's interesting because once you become a professional in the field, you know, what you say online is very much connected to your career. Yeah. Um, before you're a professional, you're just a hobbyist. And so a hobbyist can have any kind of opinion about really anything. And there's not really a repercussion for them, except maybe a few people might be angry or something like that. Once you have a career in the industry, what you say there really has an implication for, you know, your reputation, potential future, you know, book contracts or, you know, fabric company contracts or just even sort of interactions with, you know, people who are colleagues now um, instead of sort of fellow hobbyists. And so if you write something that maybe has a less popular opinion or, um, you know, it's just more personal, 
all of those people will know about it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, for me, that's why I sort of decided to push away from, from getting too personal. And on Twitter, you know, I link to things that probably show my opinions about things. I, I try not to be too provocative. Um, in my personal life, I probably am a very, you know, I'm a very opinionated person. Um, so I try not to always share my opinions with people publicly because I feel like I could alienate some people who are very nice people but happen to disagree with what I think on things. So that's been that's been where I am at this point. And, and I really do. I think it would be fun to write a blog just about stuff and be able to have the freedom to write about whatever I want and not feel like um, hurting my fabric company or my publisher by expressing my opinions. Yeah. I really hear you on that. Um, that is a fine line to walk. And I will say I really recommend um, Ellen's Twitter feed <laughs> because you you do express your opinions, not necessarily about sort of political issues, but maybe social issues um, come through. And, and you don't necessarily comment on the on the links you tweet, but by tweeting the link, you can say, like, this is what Ellen's, you know, worrying about or is concerned about and you do get a sense of sort of um what else you're thinking about besides you know your current fabric line right and i have to say these days i'm making a lot of stuff with the kids the kids but the kids are they're leading they're nine and eleven now and they lead their own craft projects um they want to do their own thing and so i will help facilitate them um i don't really feel like those are things that i can post on my blog anymore either because it's really it's their process and it's their work and I, I, I want to sort of maintain their privacy too. But we are making lots of things. I make lots of things with the kids, but in my own head, I'm in a lot of different places right now. I'm not sort of just in, you know, thinking about sewing and fabric and crafting. Um, I'm just thinking about a lot of other things too. Yeah. And I, one of the things I will say that I struggle with about writing about parenting is that I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old and a 3-year-old, and especially with my older children, I don't want to write about parenting them because they feel like at this point it's really not my story to tell so much. Like it's our story, and in some ways the struggles that they have are their story to tell. And so I really... I don't want to put it there. They can read really well. They can find it online easily. Other people who know them can find it online. You know, it's... I don't know. I feel uncomfortable, even though I feel like there are good stories there and, and interesting things to think about. It's really not my place to write about them in that way. Right. And I think I think any any person who writes um, a, about any of their life experiences sort of deals with that issue. Is is it more important to share your story, or is it more important for your personal relationships to maintain your privacy? And um, I have. We have struggles in parenting just like everybody does, and I would love to share those, but like you, I feel like my 11-year-old particularly, like that is her life, and when she grows up, and I don't really want her reading about how I felt as a parent at this age. And even, well, even if, you know, even if she were to read about it, the key for me is that not everybody else doesn't need to read about it. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, even if you wrote about it in a journal or something like that, and she were to find the journal, you know, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, whatever, um, that's one thing. And, you know, maybe she would sort of relate to me as a mom, you know, sort of working to deal with these issues. And if she's a mom herself and that sort of thing, but, but did I need to make it public, you know, so that, 
anyone could Google it and find out. Um, and that, I think, is the piece that I, I worry about in publishing mm-hmm. that sort of writing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So I feel like now um, you are uh, most well-known for being a fabric designer for Coca. I'm saying that right, correct, Coca? Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. just making sure. So mm-hmm. um, your prints are... They're like in, incredibly modern. Um, they're really simple, and you know they're not fussy in any way. They're very simple but very sophisticated, and I think they really look differently than other collections, at least collections that I've seen on the market. So, describe your path to becoming a fabric designer. I know it wasn't always the smoothest and most straightforward road, so I just want to hear about like how this all came to be. Well, I had sort of had it in the back of my mind that I would like to design fabric. I was an art history major in college, and I was always intimidated by the studio classes. I stayed away from studio classes as much as I could. Um, And I think that's one of the things about having children and blogging is that I, I gained so much confidence just creating things with my children, and I gained confidence in my creative abilities. So... I started to, when I first designed fabric, I designed a collection for Moda, and it was not as successful as I had hoped. And after that, I decided I was going to make fabric that I didn't, I didn't care what was marketable or what I thought people would buy. I wanted to make fabric that I wanted to sew with. <laughs> and that was my only, that was my only criteria. And honestly, like I would do every fabric I, I have would be just in two colors if if I could do that. Um, I like really simple designs. So um, that was one of the things I, I really wanted and I felt like there, there wasn't as much out there. And Coca has allows me complete creative freedom. It's so wonderful because I just create the designs, I send them. They print them on fabric and send them back to me. It's really, as a creative person, you couldn't ask for a better, a better setup. Um, and so they've been very supportive of everything I've done. It comes out just like I, I wanted it to, and um, it's been a great process. Now I'm really, I'm enjoying it now. Good. That sounds so so good. What a good fit. Um, and you're getting ready for quilt market, which mm-hmm. is coming up in not too long. So are you going to have a booth? Yes, um, I'll have a booth with, with Coca, and um, yeah, I'm getting ready. I'm sewing things. It's a crazy time. October is a crazy month. It's already crazy when you're a parent of young children anyway, as both of you know. There's just so much going on in October, so this has been a really hectic month. My daughter was making a chair for the Maker Fair, so I was up late with her last night. There's a Maker Fair in Atlanta this weekend in her class. They're all making chairs based on their learning styles. So she's making a kinesthetic chair. And so I'm up late last night, like, helping her glue marbles on the chair. And, you know, it's it, it's been a really crazy night. <laughs> yeah, I think people don't realize that when you're like, yeah, I'm going to have a booth at Quilt Market at the end of the month. It's not as though you're like, well, clear the calendar. You know, I'm just going to wake up and work on my booth. It's like, actually, (laughs) actually, no, I have, you know, the rest of my life is also happening. So, yes, and it's yes. And I I seem to invite chaos into my life. And, you know, we adopted a kitten a few weeks ago. 
whenever anything feels like it's calm, I just invite more chaos into my life. Uh. I'm, I'm working on my kids' school auction pro- auction this year. I'm co-chairing that, and that's taken up a ton of time. Yeah, you do amazing. You do amazing projects for your kids' school auction, quilt projects, and collaborative projects where every student contributes. And those have been, if you know, people are are thinking of doing something like that with a with a school. Um, Ellen's got some great sort of examples of what can happen and how you can really get everybody involved and still make something that people want to buy. So <laughs> I people want to bid art on. Art, but this year I'm co-chairing the whole auction. So that's wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> a little more than I was prepared for. But um, yeah. Can, okay. Before we jump into our recommendations, I wanted to make sure I touched on your um, April Fool's Day posts mm-hmm. because they're hilarious. And I, um, I, I just wanted to make sure I pointed people in those directions, like the husband cozy. Yeah, that was my favorite. My favorite. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to, I, I got my husband to. It was just like a piece of patchwork that I had lying around, and I was looking for an April Fool's joke, and um, so I got him to put it on and called it a husband cozy. And right, I mean, honestly, I would love to just do a book of. April Fool's Day jokes. I, like I love Amy Sedaris's craft books. I love funny things. And you know, last night I was sitting there making a foot hammock for a Maker Fair. And sometimes we do the most ridiculous things as craft <laughs> people. And you look at it and you think, what am I doing? Um, so that's I think being able to sort of make fun of yourself is is a good yeah. And there's like, just so people who haven't seen it, I'll link to it, but, um, there are step-by-step directions to make your husband cozy, which is like a hood, a piece of patchwork hood that goes over your husband. (laughs) So he doesn't get dusty. It's really, it's hilarious. Um, okay. So, all right, let's jump into these recommendations lists. I've asked each of you to pull together a list of things you're loving right now. And I have a few of my own to share too. So, um, Amy, we're going to start with you and you wanted, um, to start with, an art website called Colossal. Right. Yeah. You know, that site just sort of speaks for itself. It just, every time I go, I find a different art project, a different artist. What I really like is that it's international. And you know how when you um, can look at design and art blogs, it starts to feel very small. You know, things kind of travel really fast, but the same things pop up over and over again. And I feel like with Colossal, I see things that I just never would have found. And lately we've been watching this little video that I think actually has been making the rounds, but it's a dancing stoplight person. I don't know if you've seen this, but the idea is that people are, are jaywalking. They're crossing the street when they should be stopping. And so to get people to stop, the stoplight person um, dances. And um, it's just this really great sort of art safety project and um i just love that that site yeah it's gorgeous and you can just they um he posts a lot so you can just get um inspiration you know multiple times a day or just something sort of beautiful to rest your eyes on right yeah it's gorgeous (laughs) um i recommend it too Uh, i like it a lot um ellen you wanted to talk about actually a book that it's funny both of you have talked about this book. Ellen has it on her list and Amy just blogged about it. So I think maybe I should, we should get, um, from both of you, but, uh, it's called American quilts below the radar, 1950 to 2000. 
Um, so Ellen, why don't you talk about it first and then, and then we'll hear from Amy. Well, I have, I have the book, um, ordered. I have not received it yet, but I, I think that one of the things that we think about some of the young quilters or quilters who are coming up now learning to quilt, they think that modern quilts just originated in, from this movement, but all of these quilt designs have been done before. You know, it's, it all comes from the past. And I think that's just a really important thing to remember. So we think about quilts that aren't getting as much attention. You think there've been quilters for years who, who quilt for necessity, quilt for a love of it. And they didn't blog, they didn't have Instagram. They just made quilts. So I think it's really important for us to recognize that these things came from the source before us. And this book is, um, is unusual quilts. Like it's quilts below the radar. There's something sort of like, um, I don't know, sort of off about them in a weird way. Like they're, they're not perfect. They're not all perfectly lined up. Like they're, they're beautiful, but sort of, um, I don't creative, I guess, in a, in a way. Would you, would you say that that's true, Amy? Yeah. I mean, it just blew my mind. I think I'm used to seeing, um, collections, you know, curated and put together of quilts that, um, are from, I never know, is it Gee's Band or G's Band? I've heard it both ways. Just whether, what do you guys say? I say, yeah, I say G's. G's, G's Band. I mean, you know, that, that, the, the quilts of G's Band are incredible. Um, but also really easy to find. And I think when I saw this book, I thought I knew what it was going to be. And when I opened it, I was completely blown away because there's a, um, a simple sort of abstract, quality to the the G's Benz quilts that I'm very used to and this book has quilts that have a lot of small pieces a lot of applique a lot of um very small kind of um sort of mind bending kind of uh designs that also are you know nutty they're just crazy you're you're I mean I look at these quilts and I'm like this person was crazy and I mean it in the nicest way but they just they they give off this vibe of just, you know, sort of craziness. And I love that because, you know, quilters of course can get pretty uptight and, um, these are very expressive. And I also think that there's something really comforting and magical to me about these being created and they could have been lost forever and they're not, they're found and they're celebrated and they're photographed and they're cherished and people are writing about them and studying them. And, uh, you know, did these makers have no idea? Well, maybe they do now, right? They're watching this smiling, but right now when we create, we can just get it out there, right? It's like, look, I made this. Everyone tell me that I made this. Everyone kind of confirm that I made this. So I'm going to put it out on the internet because I made it and I want people to know I made it. And that's, you know, that has merit and that feels good and that's valid, but there's just been so much, so much of history and creation has not been about kind of the publicness of it. And so there's something to me really special about this book because I feel like these quilts are sort of getting their, their little spot in the, you know, I don't know, on stage or something. Yeah. And I think you, you hit it on the head when you said that they're not uptight. <laughs> right. Cause, um, you know, a lot of quilting can really be about making sure every point matches up. 
um, and sort of things are really perfect. And these aren't perfect, but they're still gorgeous. So I, I think that that's um, it's a neat book, and I um, I, I think I'm going to check it out too. American quilts below the radar. So that's a good one. Um, and I wanted to recommend something pretty simple. It's called Hubble. And it has three B's, so H-U-B-B-B-L-E, okay? And um, basically, you go, you sign up for it. It's free. It's a website. Um, and when you and you link it to your Twitter account, um, I love Twitter, so I'm on Twitter quite a lot. And I favorite things on Twitter all the time, you know, and I use the favorite button, the little star button um, on Twitter, not as a way to say like. You know how some people, like, they use it the way you would click the like button on Facebook just to be like, hey, I like what you're saying, like, you know, but I don't use it that way. I use it as like, um, you know, I want to return to the link you just, uh, you know, tweeted. I want to return to this idea that you just, uh, you know, tweeted about. And so I use it that way. And so I hit the the little star and favorite things. And then I completely forget that I favorited anything and I never go back and look at them. So here's what Hubble does. It once a week, send you an email containing all the tweets with links in them that you've favorited that week. So it is really handy. You just get an email like on Monday and it's like, hey, it's from Hubble. You favorited 15 things last week on Twitter, 15 tweets that had links in them and here they are. And so from there, you can be like, oh, yeah, I wanted to go back to that one. Um, and I usually send things to Pocket. I love Pocket, and I save all my um, tweets or links and articles that I want to read later. I save them to Pocket, and that's awesome. But sometimes I don't have time or I forget. And anyway, Hubble kind of fills in that gap. So I just wanted to recommend it if you're like me and totally forget to revisit your Twitter favorites. Um, it's a good one. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, Ellen, I know you use Twitter a lot. Amy, you're, you're not really into Twitter. Am I right? You know, I was, I found this is funny. I inadvertently, I realized that I have, I have one extra sort of spot in my life for social media other than my blog. And so when I first started my blog, my little add on was Flickr and I was all about Flickr and my blog. And then I, I couldn't really keep up with that. And so then I think I kind of took a break and then Twitter came. So then I was like, oh, I was totally into Twitter and my blog. And then I kind of lost steam there and then Instagram came. And so now I do Instagram and my blog and I can't seem to really, I just, I'm okay with it now. I'm like, oh, right. Twitter. I forget to check, but you know, it just, I can't get, I just can't, uh, I can't do more than two. It's just, there's some weird thing. It's not a rule. It's just sort of my, um, I think it's my natural habit. Like I have a certain amount of time and I just always run out of time before I get to a third source. But I do have this, you know, on typepad, you can click, you want it to update your Twitter and Facebook thing. So I just click on those two things. So I have a presence there, but Mm -hmm. I don't go, I don't go there. And then I'm bummed because I do have some friends that hang out on Twitter and I don't kind of know what they're up to otherwise. And I feel bad, you know, and then I'm, and then I'm going to go back, but I, yeah, I kind of have let it go, let go my inability to have three. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's entirely okay. I, um, I wasn't on Instagram for a long time. I was like an Instagram resistor. Right. Right. And then I was like, all right, I'll try it. So (laughs) now I'm there too. But 
Um, but it's yeah. definitely kind of my last place. So, which is weird yeah. because I feel like with craft bloggers, it's like their number one place in some ways. And for many people, it replaced their blog entirely. Um, oh, no, that's so true. And I always wonder because you can't really link. I mean, it's, I don't, you can't link at least right now. And yeah. I'm so like what you said, part of what my joy is, is saying, Oh my gosh, check out this weird thing I'm into. And I want to link to it, you right. know? So it's not, it's not really, yeah. It's yeah. Not yeah. For me. Interesting. Um, okay. So you wanted to recommend another awesome website, which is brain pickings. Right. Right. That's kind of a rabbit hole. I mean, that's, you know, that's its own world and I don't really even know how to describe it. I mean, is it just book reviews? I don't really know. It's, um, it's just a great place for me to get inspiration. What I love about that site is that she doesn't, um, focus necessarily on new, new books. You know, there'll be things from, you know, way back and current things and old things and, uh, articles referencing books, referencing theories, referencing philosophy. And, um, I just always find something there that's interesting, but I do subscribe to the digest to the weekly mm -hmm. because it, it does, I can kind of get lost. And so I, I do like to sort of just visit once a week or even less than that. I think some of these sites that are really meaningful to me, I don't go to very often because it just, it kind of, I get too sucked in. So that's about, you know, twice a month type of site for me. Yeah. She's amazing. God, yeah. Her level of output and her intellectual curiosity and knowledge base is just astounding. I don't know how she does it. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Maria. She's really, I don't know. I admire people who can do that. It's amazing. <laughs> um, all right, Ellen, you wanted to talk about um, the Emery Dress Pattern by Christine Haynes. Yes, I just sewed one for Quilt Market, and it's a great pattern. I loved it. It's It fits well. It was easy to sew. The instructions were great. And really, I, I never sewed for myself. Um, so I think this is like the first real dress I've ever sewn for myself. Uh, I don't like to wear clothes I've made. <laughs> I don't like people to say, oh, did you make that? And then I have to get into a conversation about it. So I, just, <laughs> I feel like some people are the other way around. They want people to say, did you make that? And then they want to be like, yes, I did. And let me tell you right. about it, but not you. I will make, a, I will make bags, but I just, there, maybe I'm just insecure or something. I don't like to make clothing for myself. I've, I've always made clothing for my kids. So I was actually excited to make a dress that, and I made it in my size, so it would fit me. And it's a, a sample for Quilt Market, too. So that was fun. Yeah. Okay. Good one. I also never sew clothes for myself. I actually never sew clothes, but I never sew clothes for myself. <laughs> never. Never. I don't think I ever have. Um, so, and it's, I just don't, I don't want to. I don't know. Something wrong with me, but there you are. Well, it's a lot faster to buy them. Yeah. Okay. There you are. Um, I don't know if you, wow. do you, do you guys remember that TV show? It was on very briefly. It was called craft corner death match. No. Okay. There was this TV show. I don't know what it was on late at night on some cable channel. It was called craft corner death match. It was probably on like five years ago, but the hosts motto sort of in the very beginning, he was like, remember it's cheaper and easier just to, just to buy stuff. And I was like, I'm always like, I'll come downstairs after like some failed crafting thing. And, and I'll just say to my husband, you know, it's cheaper and easier just to buy stuff. Like seriously. Right. But of course that's not the point. That's why we do it. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it's true. Um, all right. So I wanted to recommend a website. It's actually an email service. Another email. Okay. I'm into email services today. This one is called what to wear. And, um, all right. So every morning my older kids when they get dressed, they yell down to me from upstairs. Um, what do we wear today? What's the weather going to be? And then they get into this thing where they want to know, should they wear long and long, short and long, short and short, like all of these combinations, which means like long sleeve shirt and long pants, short sleeve shirt and long pants, short sleeve shirt and shorts. Like they, they go through like every combination and it drives me. My husband and I are like long and long, short and long, long and short. Like it's just crazy. So here's what this, this solves this whole problem. So every day um, you get an email and it actually only functions for the Boston metro area right now. I'm sorry. I hope they expand. But um, so this guy, Joshua Porter, is the person who started it. He works at HubSpot. And he noticed that most people who check the weather want to check the weather to find out what to wear that day. But no weather reports include that specific information. So he created, he looked into creating an app and he just decided to do this via email to make it most simple and kind of test the idea. So um, every morning you get an email and it includes the weather for the day, hour by hour, and it suggests to you what you should wear. Like, should you wear skirt and tights? flats, boots? Should you bring sunglasses today? It said you needed an umbrella because it's raining. It's going to rain later today. It is so helpful. So I just read it to my kids and we just obliterated the long and short, short and short. <laughs> like, we're done with that now. I'm like, they're like, do you have the email from the guy? And then I just like read it to them and they're like, okay. And then they go upstairs. <laughs> so it's so funny because I feel like this is, this conversation happens in our house a hundred times a day. Right. It really does. I don't know. And my girls just turned 12, almost 10 and seven. And it, it, and it can go on and on and on like what to wear. I don't ever remember thinking about this when I was little, you know, it's so funny. It's it's like, I don't know. We just like stick our head. We like put our heads down and we're just like, Oh no, here we go. So anyway, (laughs) I can't stand it when my kid, my kids will ask me, what should I wear? What should I wear? And they feel temperature differently than I do. So I have to tell them, Walk outside. Yeah, that right. No, yeah. Whatever you're wearing, walk outside, stand there for a minute. Do you feel like you need a jacket? Okay, right. then you need a jacket. Right. Yeah, we do the outside we, test a lot. Yes, we do. And we have a thermometer outside <laughs> that and has a reader inside. So they'll look and it even predicts what, but none of these things is enough. Okay. But what to wear has been a lifesaver. So I hope he expands to other places besides Metro Boston. But if you live in Boston, sign up. Okay. Awesome. When we were children, we must've just experienced more discomfort. You know, <laughs> oh, we must've tolerated it better. No, just I go agree. out in shorts in the winter and deal with it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. God, I don't know whether it's because I have, we all have girls. I don't know. Cause that's part, potentially part of it, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Boys, do boys do this? I, I wouldn't know. I don't know. All of our neighbor boys, they wear shorts every day. No every matter. day in the winter. I've never seen them in pants. Yeah. And it's freezing here. Like yep. it gets to be four degrees for months. Yeah. Like it's not yeah. okay to wear, but yeah. that's what they do. I know. I see them riding their bikes yeah. and I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. My. Basketball shorts every day for years. Yeah. Yep. I'm yeah. like, I can't even wear that to bed, like in my own house. I'm freezing. <laughs> All right, Amy, you wanted to talk about these brush pens. Yeah. Akashia or Akashia, I don't know how to say that. Um, disposable yeah. brush pens from Jet Pens. Yeah. So I just, it's a simple thing, but when I'm doing sketching at all and I'm using just a regular fine point, if I remember to actually, when I do my outline, 
to switch to a brush pen or even start with a brush pen and then go back in with just like a regular pen, like a Pegma, the quality of line is so amazing and it gives it a slight comic feel, but also I do a lot of calligraphy with the brush pens and, um, my middle child has, uh, taken them all and she now has them, which is unfortunate for me, but, um, she loves them and she uses them the same way to outline and they just give this sort of thick, thin quality. Um, it seems really simple, but when you use them as a drawing tool mixed with regular pens, it, um, it's just magic. You're thinking this is so great. It's two dollars or something but it really is it's it's just a simple thing that i'm getting a lot of enjoyment of now awesome yeah anything that's gonna make me draw more you know because it's gonna be cool and like you know i'll be motivated to use it so i'll draw more is a good thing yes absolutely yeah the key is is having your own craft supplies and not letting your children use them (laughs) amy it sounds like you haven't mastered that either because i can't do it you know i keep trying and i don't know why i keep trying i mean i know why i keep trying but i uh you know the two things happen either for i'm hiding them because they're expensive and i really need them or when i'm doing you know like on etsy i sell these birth charts and i need those pens you know so i have some stashed but then i I just am such a sucker because the minute they get to my really good art supplies, they do such amazing stuff with it. And so I'm like, okay, you can use the $30 sable watercolor brush. I mean, it's awful, you know, but I love it. I love what, what they can do. And so, you know, I'm trying to balance it out. Yeah. Every time my kids pick up something expensive, I think, oh, I wish I'd been able to play with that when I was a kid and I let them do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice to play with cool art supplies. Absolutely. Yeah. And it makes a bit, as we all know, having good tools makes a difference. Yeah. And so their stuff's going to come out looking better, you know, and they're going to enjoy it more and be less frustrated and all that good stuff. So, um, well, Ellen and Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. This is great. Oh, good. Um, So you can visit Ellen online at thelongthread.com. And Amy at angrychicken.typepad.com. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.